Well, the first thing I think he would do would be to stand up and tell the truth. I mean, he had a great expression that was uh, just tell the truth and watch them scatter. So the further away the problem is, uh, the easier it is to postpone action on And that's essentially what we're doing. Be real, because people in New Hampshire are really cool. I'd say get in the game. This is a problem facing your generation. You have to have a voice in the decision. Welcome to Facing the Future, brought to you by the Concord Coalition on WKXL, New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how it all affects our nation's future. This week, we're going to talk about two budget-related deadlines tied to April 15th. I'm sure you know about the first one. It's the deadline for filing federal income tax returns. The other deadline is a bit more obscure and has far fewer consequences because there aren't any penalties for ignoring it. Uh, But that is the deadline for Congress to pass its annual uh, budget resolution. That's supposed to be done by April 15th. Uh, Spoiler alert, they're not going to make that deadline this year. In fact, they haven't even started the process. That's not too surprising since the Budget Act was established. Congress has very, very, very rarely uh, made that deadline. So today we're going to get insights on taxes and the budget process from two veteran fiscal policy experts, Howard Gleckman and Tom Kahn. First up uh, to discuss tax policy is Howard Gleckman. He is a senior fellow at the Urban Brookings Tax Policy Center. And before joining Urban, Gleckman was senior correspondent at the uh, Washington Bureau of Business Week magazine. And then we'll turn to Tom Kahn, who is a faculty fellow at the Center for Congressional and Presidential Studies at American University. Uh, Prior to joining the AU faculty, Tom worked uh, in Congress for 33 years, and for 20 of those, he was staff director and chief counsel of the House Budget Committee. For both conversations, I'll be joined by policy director Tori Gorman and chief economist Steve Robinson, both my colleagues at the Concord Coalition. Let's begin with uh, tax policy and our first guest, Howard Gleckman, a senior fellow at the Tax Policy Center. Howard, Tori, and Steve, welcome to Facing the Future. Good to see you, Bob. Thanks, Bob. Thanks, Bob. Howard, we've been uh, spending a lot of time in recent weeks talking about spending. And uh, there is another part of the budget (laughs) on revenues. And uh, with uh, tax day coming up at the end of the week, uh, April 15th, we, uh, we wanted to spend a little bit of time uh, talking about the revenue side of the budget. Um, you know, last year, there was an unexpected gusher of revenues. It was unexpected to me anyway. Uh, and uh, it, it helped keep the deficit down. I don't mean to say that the deficit was low by any means, <laughs> but it was uh, perhaps lower than expectations because there was this gusher of revenues. Uh, I guess we'll know more at the end of the month uh, after people have filed their tax returns. But uh, does it seem likely to you that uh, that that was a one off or do we have a promising new trend of more revenues that will help make the budget outlook more promising? So I I think there are a few things going on. And one of them is, of course, inflation, which which raised wages, which raised the income tax and the payroll tax. Um, Corporate profits were still good. I mean, people were you know, worried about whether the economy was going to fall into recession. It didn't. So corporate profits were strong. Um, so we had a good year. Um, you know, 
I, I'm, I'm always hesitant to predict uh, where revenues are going to go because, as you said, people were wrong last year. Um, it's hard to imagine that, the, that, that revenue growth will be as strong in, in the coming year as it was. Uh, but I think the main point is, even if it is, we are still going to fall vastly short uh, of, of generating enough revenue to pay for the government that we seem to want. Uh, with the with the current tax system in place, we're just we're we're never going to get there. It's 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 you know rolling the 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 rock uphill, and you, you just never get to the top. Yeah, we were just uh, talking about the CBO baseline, and it's 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 just astounding that the gap now averages um, two trillion a year over the next ten years, and you know as a percentage of GDP, they're just. Deficits at very very high levels historically twice uh, well maybe not twice but I mean they're six percent of GDP you usually have somewhere around three percent of GDP so it's uh, it's a pretty big gap um, Tori given this conversation about the the need for more revenues one of the reasons why raising new revenue always sort of causes problems at least from an economics perspective is that you know taxes can create distortions within an economy that that sort of alter the way people make decisions whether they spend whether they save whether they invest whether they disinvest um but uh, you know Raising taxes can also hurt the economy. Um, and given we're sort of on the cusp of a, of a situation right now where we're really not sure which direction the economy is going, is there a way, you know, given the fact that we know that we need more revenue, you know, $2 trillion of deficits for year ad infinitum, we need more revenue. We need a bigger boat, as we say. Um, what's the best way to raise revenue in this current environment that is the least distortionary and has the least harmful effect on the economy. Does that exist? Yeah. So it's an interesting question. So maybe it's good to think about it both in the short run and in the long run. I think probably in the short run, as you kind of implied in your question, it's probably not a great time to be raising revenues. Um, You know, the economy is very uncertain. Uh, The Fed is continuing to tighten. Uh, The job market is still very strong, but it is showing signs of slowing a little bit. Um, it, it, It Maybe not a great time to do it in the short run. In the long run, um, it's inevitable. I mean, you know, we're we're spending twenty four percent of GDP over the next decade, and we're, and we're generating eighteen percent of GDP in revenues. That doesn't add up. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so we need to do something. I, I have been skeptical for the last several years about whether or not we can really get enough money through the income tax. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we seem to have really reached the maximum rates that the political system was willing to accept. And there is no appetite in the political system to do anything about the tax preferences that blow such a giant hole in the, in the tax code. Mm-hmm. So in that environment, you know, you could almost say we've gotten what we're going to get out of the income tax and we're going to need some new kind of tax to close this gap. And, and my guess is it's probably going to be a consumption tax. could be a wealth tax, but I don't think a wealth tax is practical, either politically or administratively. Right. So I think it's probably some sort of a tax on consumption. So uh, whether that means like a, like a national sales tax or a VAT value-added tax or... Or it could be a value-added tax. Um, it could be, you know, you could try to kill two birds with one stone and do some sort of carbon tax. Mm-hmm. Although getting a big enough number out of that is probably not realistic either. 
Um, but something like that, I think, may be where we end up going. But in the long run, it's not happening anytime soon. It's certainly not happening in the current political environment. The other thing to, to, to just keep in mind on taxes is, you know, that CBO baseline that Bob was talking about, that awful CBO baseline that Bob was talking about, assumes that the individual provisions of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act actually expires or scheduled to in 2025. Um, uh, both President Biden and most congressional Republicans have said they want it to continue, at least in some form. And at the Tax Policy Center, we estimated that extending the, uh, the, the provisions of the TCJA would add $3 trillion more to the debt over the next decade. So, uh, you know, uh, you're when you're going? in a hole, stop digging. <laughs> when, you're first, when you're first in a hole, stop digging. Exactly. And, and, and nobody is talking about that, you know. Of course, on the spending side, you know, Republicans started saying they were going to balance budget in 10 years, and then they started throwing overboard all the ways to do it. We're not going to touch Social Security. We're not going to touch Medicare. We're not going to touch defense spending. We're not going to cut veterans benefits. And by the time you're done, you've got a, a, a system where you'd have to eliminate the entire rest of government, which probably isn't going to happen. Just kind of a wild guess. We're stuck. We're going to have to make some kind of choice here, but we're not close to making it in the polit current political environment. So that brings me to my next question, and that is one of the ways to generate more revenue is to collect the revenue that's actually owed. Okay, we're not changing the law at all, but empowering the IRS to collect the revenue that people already owe. Um, the, the the last reconciliation bill, I think it was, that passed, you know, gave a big, huge chunk of money. I want to say, is it is it eighty million or eighty billion? Eighty billion. Eighty billion with a B right. to the IRS. Was that, you know, and Republicans are, are making hay about how you know the IRS is going to come and audit, you know, Joe Average. What is your take on that investment? And I'm using my little air quote fingers here. What do you think about that investment in the IRS? Is that going to be good money, good money spent or bad money spent? So it's 80 billion dollars over 10 years. Um, it will be divided among uh, several functions. One of them is what the IRS likes to call customer service. I'm sort of offended that the IRS calls me a customer because it sort of implies <laughs> that I have a choice in the matter. But, that, <laughs> uh, but taxpayer service, which is answering the phone, uh, uh, getting refunds to people, processing the returns on time. The second piece is information technology, and the IRS is notoriously bad at that, um, and, and they're trying to get better at it. And, and, and some of that computer uh, uh, capability will actually help with the last piece of it, which is audits and enforcement. And, 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 the, and the third chunk of it, and the largest chunk actually, is uh, spending money on auditing and enforcement. The, the, the Biden administration says it will not audit um, uh, people making less than $400,000 a year at higher rates than it has historically. And we don't know exactly what that means because we don't know what historically means. But the implication is that we're going we're gonna to continue to have very, very low audit rates on people making $400,000. I've got two problems with that. One of them is, I don't know when $400,000 became middle class. In, I don't know whose life that is. It's not mine. Um, the, the other one is, we know that a significant amount of tax fraud and tax avoidance happens from small businesses, uh, businesses, pass-through businesses where the taxes are paid by the owners on their individual 1040s. And most of those people make less than $400,000 a year. Mm -hmm. And we all know what that is. It's not reporting income. 
It's, you know, putting the family car on the business. It's, you know, going on the Disneyland vacation and putting that on the business. Expensing it. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and there's, a, there's a lot there. And Tori, your question, you know, going after fraud and, and, and avoidance is an important part of the story. We should be collecting the taxes that people owe. Mm-hmm. But if we start off by saying we're going we're gonna to ignore tax avoidance and tax fraud by probably the largest segment of the population that commits it, you're not likely to accomplish a lot. Now, that, that said, they're going to they're gonna accomplish something. Um, I think you know, by improving the technology, um, by improving the audit function, simply by improving customer service, you know, a lot of underpayment of taxes is not deliberate. It's mistakes. You know, uh, one of the big controversial areas is the earned income credit. Right. And, and um, it's an interesting thing. My colleagues at the Tax Policy Center do volunteer tax prep for low-income people. And even though many of them are PhD tax economists or tax lawyers, when they first take a look at the EITC, the Earned Income Tax Credit Forum, they, they freak out because it's so complicated. And, and I think this is a big part of the problem. The IRS is only going to get so far here because the tax code is complicated. It's a complicated mess. And, and, and you know, people are either going to avoid taxes by taking advantage of the complexity or they're going to make mistakes because they don't understand the complexity. And that's really for Congress to fix. You know, the IRS, all the, all the technology and all the customer service and all the rest isn't going to help because the tax code is just too complicated. Steve. Yeah, so let me let me go back to something that Tori asked you at the beginning in terms of the, the trade-off between good tax policy and good politics. Um, I mean, I think most economists agree that a sales tax, consumption tax is the best, most economically efficient tax base. But if you're going to convince the American public to accept a sales tax or consumption tax, you know, they, you know, they're, I don't think they're going to willingly go there. Uh, and part of the problem is related to the tax gap and the widespread public perception that there are all of these rich people who are not paying their fair share. I mean, if you look at the polling data, you ask a, a general open-ended question, do you think rich people should pay more taxes? Overwhelmingly, the answer is, oh, yeah, they should pay more. But if you ask a slightly different question, you say, well, how much do you think they should pay? What is the, you know, what is a reasonable tax rate that, that people should pay? And there was an old Reader's Digest poll from some years ago, and the median response was 25%. So, you know, it, and it turns out, I mean, obviously there are rich people who don't pay any taxes, but on average, the top 1%, we know from IRS data, they pay roughly 25%. So, you know, on, on average. And so the question is, how do you sell the American public on the notion that, yeah, we're all going to have to bite the bullet and pay more taxes when there is this widespread perception that until the rich pay their fair share, I'm not going to pay any more than, than, you're, than I am already. There's this you know, disconnect between the reality of, of the tax numbers and the public perception that there's too many people who are not paying their fair share. Yeah, I, you know, years and years ago, Russell Long, who was the chairman of the Senate Finance Committee, famously said, you know, don't tax me, don't tax the, tax the fellow behind the tree. And I think that really is people's attitude is, you know, you know, I don't like deficits. You guys know that better than anybody. Probably ask public about the deficits. They don't like deficits. Um, uh, you know, and we need to do something about it, but not me. You know, somebody else has to do something about it. 
And, and you know, we, we, we somehow need to get over that. And the way you get over it, it seems to me, is a serious conversation by politicians about what the problem is and how to fix it. You know, uh, uh, you're exactly right, Steve. I mean, the, the, the tax code, despite what the, the, the left says, the tax code is actually quite progressive, except at the very, very, very top, where you have people who, who are paying very low capital gains rates and, and very little ordinary income rates. But for the most part, through the, through the, uh, the, the, the income distribution, it's, it's quite progressive. And low and moderate income people don't pay taxes at all in many cases. They're, they're getting uh, refundable tax credits. Um, so, uh, you know, people are in pretty good shape, really. Um, but um, we don't want, we don't understand that it goes back to what I was saying before, the tax code is so complicated and so opaque, it's hard to imagine that people really would understand what was going on, because you know, who does? You know, I think the, the, the microcosm of this is actually social security, you know, not the income tax, but actually social security. So we just saw, you know, another social security actuaries report that once again tells us that in about 10 years, uh, the, the, the social security old age system is going to be out of money. It's going it's, it's to be insolvent and, and it will have to pay about 22% less than it than has been projected than effectively it has promised people if we do nothing. That's the default. If we do nothing, benefits will fall by 22% in about 10 years. Now, that's, that's impossible. That's really not going to happen. But what's going to happen between now and then? And that, Steve, goes to kind of your question about the politics. So when Democrats say the solution to this is to raise payroll taxes in some way, Republicans all say, absolutely impossible. You're going to raise taxes on low and moderate income people. It's terrible. You can't do it. When Republicans say, no, the solution to this is to reduce benefits or re reduce promised benefits somewhat, the Democrats all say, can't do that. What are you doing? You're ripping off everybody and people have been promised this money and you can't. Do it. You know, it's actually fairly easy to fix Social Security. We know how to do it. There's a, there's a, you know, there's a, a, a menu that, that everybody's seen that tells you how much you can get if you do this and if you do that. It's simply a matter of doing the arithmetic. It's pretty clear to me that in the end, we're going to do a combination of, of reducing, <coughs> reducing benefits somewhat or reducing promised benefits somewhat and raising taxes somewhat. And you do that, you can fix the problem, just like the Greenspan Commission did 30 years ago. Um, we know how to do it. We just don't want to. And, and politicians don't want to have a serious conversation about this. And this is going to happen in 10 years. You know, the, the, it won't happen to the next president, to the person who's elected in 2024. But the one who's elected in 2028 is going to have this puppy sitting in their lap. It's that close. And we don't want to have a serious conversation about it. Um, so, you know, we're going, to, we're going to get down to the wire. We're going to do what Congress always does in a crisis. And, and we're going to have an, a, a, an unnecessary crisis, you know, that could, could have been entirely avoided. I just have a quick question to end on here. Um, there were some tax increases enacted as part of the Inflation Reduction Act um last year uh and there were also a lot of tax credits that will cost you know new tax expenditures when will we get a sense of how those are working either in terms of how much they're costing on the credit side or taking in on the increase side well it's gonna take a year or two 
you know, I, for example, one of the many of the tax credits are uh, are uh, for green energy, you know, subsidies for purchasing, you know, electric vehicles or, or or that sort of thing. And the Treasury is still writing the rules for those. And, you know, it's a real problem because the the, the, the law tries to do two things at once. It wants to reduce consumption of carbon. And at the same time, it wants to encourage people to buy American. These two things conflict with one another. And the Treasury is trying to thread the needle and figure out what to do. And it's been a real challenge. So we don't know how many people are actually going to take these credits and how much they're going to, how, the, how much they're going to work and how much they're going to reduce uh, revenues. Uh, on the tax increase side, you know, we have things like, uh, uh, like you know, uh, taxes on, on stock buybacks. Uh, you know, the, the tax lawyers I talk to say it's going to make no difference. Uh, a 1% tax on buybacks is, gonna, is, is simply not going to affect CFOs of large corporations. I'll just keep doing what they're doing. But we'll see. It may generate a little revenue, you know. Um, don't know. Thanks for uh, being with us today. Um, that's uh, all the time we have for this segment. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I have been discussing tax policy with Howard Gleckman, a senior fellow at the Urban Brookings Tax Policy Center. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. In this segment, we'll turn our attention to the budget process, if there is such a thing anymore. And our guest is Tom Kahn, a faculty fellow at American University and former Democratic staff director of the House Budget Committee. Uh, Long time serving uh, staff director, I should note. Tori Gorman and Steve Robinson are still with me, and they both have Congressional Budget Committee credentials of their own. So, uh, Tom, you know, the, the budget process says that Congress is supposed to finish its work by April 15th, which is uh, this coming Saturday. How are they doing? Um, well, first of all, I say, Bob, thank you so much for inviting me back. And it's really great to be back with Concord Coalition and with you and and Tori and Steve, all, all a budget committee alums with me. Um, the short answer is they're doing terribly. If uh, if they were uh, students in my uh, class, I would give the uh, budget committee big Fs um, uh, because I think there is a high likelihood, and I'm not a betting person, but it is now April 11th. I think the chances of doing a budget resolution by April 15th are about zero. And um, we are really... Um, uh, Frankly, I hate using draconian terms, but we are really headed over a, a scary cliff unless something happens relatively soon um, because there is no budget resolution. Um, I think, as everybody knows, the debt ceiling needs to be increased sometime this summer. We don't know exactly when. We will know better in, in a few days when the new tax receipts come in as of April 15th. Um, but clearly, we are going to need to raise the debt ceiling. Congress will need to do it. And if it doesn't do so, uh, we, I think the nation is, is facing some really scary times. Um, and there are, are no prospects for negotiations right now uh, between the administration and, and the Republican House. Um, and the Republican House Control Budget Committee and the Senate Budget Committee of Democrats are not preparing budget resolutions. And so um, we're kind of stuck. Uh, and um, 
Um, so, you know, we will muddle through, uh, but but uh, the consequences of not acting are, 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 and we've never been in this state before. Um, we have always ultimately raised the debt ceiling in time. Uh, it's come close in 2011, but mm-hmm. I, I fear that we may not raise it in time this time. Going back to the the the, the budget resolution, I, I I think it's since the Budget Act was passed back in the mid seventies, there have been very very rare instances in which, well, there have been very very rare instances where they've complied with it, but but where neither the House or Senate has passed a budget resolution. Sometimes you'll have one pass one and the other one doesn't. It certainly doesn't look like the Senate is is working on one. Uh, or, or would ever get there. And the I mean, the House, it's really a political statement. They got themselves into a promise that couldn't be kept. If they'd checked the math, they would have known that. But and now there's a lot of finger pointing and uh, internal squabbling there among the leadership about how they get out of it. And the, the, the solution seems to be to blame Biden for not negotiating over the debt ceiling, which really doesn't prevent them from negotiating over appropriations. But, but where I'm headed with this is that there, there are going to have to uh, pass appropriations bills at some point or the government shuts down. Um, what's your sense of where that's going to end up? Well, um, I don't think it would be a great surprise if everything gets rolled in because the appropriations levels will be a, a central uh, uh, focus for the debt ceiling. And um, there's even been some talk that House Republicans might um, uh, pass a short-term debt ceiling increase um, to extend up to October 1st so that there can be one grand negotiation, although the White House has indicated no interest in that. And the White House position, I don't think, is unreasonable. The White House position has been, we put forward a budget, here are our priorities, here are, here are revenue, here's our spending. Now you pr- present us with your plan. Um, and House Republicans have been unable to do that because, as you said, Bob, there has been so much infighting. Uh, there have been press reports recently, on, you know, reports that uh, uh, Chairman Jody Arrington does not have the, um, the faith or the support of, of, Speaker, um, of Speaker McCarthy. Um, and um, Jody Arrington, speak, uh, Chairman Arrington, has drafted um, some budget proposals, um, but uh, apparently does not have the support of his conference. And frankly, even if House Republicans on the Budget Committee could pass something out of committee, there's really uh, very low likelihood they could pass it on the House floor. You know, um, we can talk about the debt ceiling in in a second, and I don't want to dominate with Steve and and, and Tori give their perspectives, but um, I, I frankly think... You know, I think that Speaker McCarthy is 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 a weak speaker, and his caucus is so fractured um, that it's hard to imagine how uh, a final agreement on the debt ceiling and appropriations bills will be able to pass. That on the one hand has the support of the of the White House, and yet at the same time can pass the House of Representatives, even if there is a deal which passes the Senate. And I think that is feasible. I think that Mitch McConnell and Joe Biden could cut a deal. You know, the House Republicans want to be at the uh, fiscal, at the House, uh, at the 2022 level. 
Um, and the president obviously has, has, a, has a significant increase in discretionary spending. You know, somewhere you, you, you split the difference or you go to the 23 level. Um, but even if something were to pass the Senate with Republican support, it's just hard to see how it can get through the House. Um, and yet Speaker McCarthy actually survives his speakership because he is, is so dependent on a, such a diverse body, uh, particularly people on the far right. Um, even the House Rules Committee, he does not control because Freedom Caucus members are there. So it's just not clear to me how you actually get something on the floor of the House that the House can pass, even if 2018 House members want to vote for it. Tori? Say what you want about Mitch McConnell's politics, but you know the Senate Minority Leader is usually the adult in the room when it comes to a crisis. I know the Senate is used to waiting for the House to move, and then the Senate reacts to what the House has passed and sends something back to the House and says, <laughs> take it. Um, in, in this instance, um, it looks like Mitch McConnell will have to be the adult in the room again. But as you say, trying to negotiate something that will get the support of of House Republicans is unlikely. Does your crystal ball then suggest that Mitch McConnell is going to have to work a little bit more closely with the new House minority leader and with Chuck Schumer and putting something together? Does the the House Republican caucus inability to coalesce, if you will, empower Democrats in the Senate and the House when it comes to any kind of debt limit negotiation or appropriations bills? Because that's where the votes are. That's where the votes are gettable. You know, Terry, I think it's a great question. And uh, I think ultimately the answer is going to have to be yes. Um, but unfortunately, again, if the, the challenge is how to get something, you know, and, and I think your scenario, scenario you, you lay out is, is, a, is a very logical one and is consistent with history. And, and as you say quite correctly, Mitch McConnell is the adult in the room. Procedurally, as somebody who worked in the House for 30 years, and I, I've looked at the House process, and people talk about voting down the previous question or a process where you get 218 members to um, to, to sign a petition, uh, discharge petition, that will get something on the floor. But the bottom line is, even with a discharge petition, uh, it, will, it requires 30 to 60 days. Um, and voting down the previous question, again, would require the acquiescence of the speaker. So even if there is a deal with, with Senate Democrats, Senate Republicans, and the White House, and House Democrats, it's just not clear to me how that actually gets a vote on the floor of the House of Representatives, unless McCarthy closes his eyes to it or goes along with it. And frankly, if, if he were to do so, it would seem to me that that would be the end of his speakership. Um, and that's why I'm honestly not incredibly optimistic. I think there's some chance that we may go into default for a couple of days uh, and that the, the markets uh, crash, interest rates it's go fair. up. And, and then at, at that point, uh, enough House Republicans say, you know, we just can't go on like this. And as a result, uh, then a deal is cut. But I hope I'm wrong about that. And, and I'd like to believe I am. It is amazing. I I, I can't imagine how they get out of this um, dilemma because of promises uh, made. So it seems to me there has to be some sort of kabuki dance arranged where everybody gets to claim that they won. And um, 
something comes out of it. So I, I don't know if Mitch McConnell's talents um, include arranging Kabuki. Um, he's he's been able to do it before. Uh, I kind of like the idea on the debt limit of, um, you know, letting the president raise it and Congress veto it if they want to. And that oh, the resolution of disapproval, yeah, mm-hmm. resolution of disapproval. But I'm not sure. I, I think that's by the board. I mean, I don't think that that's tough enough for the um, would be enough cover to um, that the Republicans in the House would accept that. Although it's a it's a very logical way if they don't want to. If they want the owners to be on the president, it will be, and they can vote against it, which would give them, it seems to me, everybody what they want, and the governments uh, would not default on any of its obligations. But who knows? Maybe that's uh, in the pipeline. We're going to have to take our first break. Uh, we're talking to Tom Kahn, senior, a, a senior faculty fellow at the um, American University and former uh, staff director of the House Budget Committee. Um, We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, and Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I are talking with Tom Kahn, faculty fellow at American University and former Democratic staff director of the House Budget Committee. Uh, We're talking about the budget process this year. Will they pass appropriations? Will they pass, raise the debt ceiling? There are a lot of deadlines coming up uh, throughout the course of the year. Steve. Assuming we get past all the deadlines this year, we raise the debt limit and we keep the government funded for another year. Um, Let's let's talk a little bit about big picture going forward. I mean, there, there used to be a consensus that you know, we, we wanted to balance the budget, although we haven't we haven't done that since President Clinton was in office. But there there was a sort of a bipartisan consensus that on average, over time, we ought to be you know trying to trying to balance the budget. And of course, we see with the latest numbers from the Congressional Budget Office, it looks almost darn impossible to balance the budget any time in the foreseeable future. So I guess the question is, what is an alternative goal? In other words, if if I mean, it's easy for people to understand. We're going to balance the budget. People understand. The public understands what that means. But if you're a politician and you realize that the public is not going to stand for the level of taxes and the level of spending uh, reductions that would be needed to get to a balance, is there some alternative goal that you can both sell politically and that makes sense from an economic perspective? I'd say the highlight of my my thirty year career and on Capitol Hill was working in 1997 on the uh, balanced budget agreement with um, Bill Clinton, Newt Gingrich, um, Pete Domenici, and, and John Spratt. That, that was where we brought four years of, of balanced budgets. That, that was uh, an extraordinary achievement. And um, uh, it would it sure be nice to go back to that. Um, but you're, you're, of course, you're, you're right that the notion of balancing the budget is, um, uh, I think, um, so far out and quixotic uh, because the pain that would be caused in terms of either raising taxes or cutting spending are those, as you said, uh, are, are those the American people would not accept. I think short of that, um, another goal would be to keep the debt uh, constant as a percentage of GDP. Um, I think that what's scary right now is that the debt as a percentage of the economy is growing fast and um, and and, and to an untenable level. And, um, uh, and, and, and Concord Coalition has put together some terrific 
charts and graphs, which I think lay that out very clearly. Um, and so if we can stop that trend, if we can um, maintain the debt or even reduce the debt as a percentage of the economy um, over, over time, so the economy is growing faster than the debts and deficits, I think that would be an achievement. I think that'd be a significant achievement and, and something that, that we, we, we should work toward. So does, does that uh, excite the imagination of the American public, though, to say <laughs> we're going we're gonna to stabilize the debt to GDP ratio? I mean, from an economic perspective, it makes sense. But I just wonder, politically, it's, it's, it's a more difficult goal to rally around, I think. I could see the parades down Fifth Avenue, <laughs> stabilize the debt as a percentage of the ticket talk, you know. Um, <laughs> No, it wouldn't. Um, you know, um, I, I would like to believe that there is a bipartisan consensus that the debt is growing too fast. And, you know, the president um, put forward a budget which actually does cut um, the deficit. Um, and, um, and, and in fact, his budget over, over the last, I guess, two, three years, the deficit has 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 dropped um, for a lot of reasons, not the least of which, of course, is COVID is is no longer um, is no longer an expense. Um, he does it through tax increases, and um, um, and revenue, I think, has to be part of the ultimate solution. But good gosh, it can't be the only solution. I mean, it's going to have to take some serious um, spending cuts, uh, and it's going to require all of us in lots of different ways to, to pull in our belts. And um, we, we talk about spending increases and the, the Biden budget has a number of spending increases. His, his discretionary increases, I think, are around 9%. Um, and I think that has to be reevaluated in, in, um, in this economy um, and with this debt. Um, but we also have to consider revenue and, and put that on the table. We talked about neither of the budget committees are likely to produce budgets. Uh, not, they don't seem to be working in that direction. That's a, so that's, a, that's an alarming trend. And since you all, all three of you worked as uh, staffers on the budget committees in various House or Senate, or, um, do we need to reevaluate the budget committee uh, as a role? I mean, what is the role for a budget committee if they're not going to do budgets? When the budget committee was created in the early 1970s, um, under President Nixon, and um, I think the idea of a budget committee, which is that co that Congress would take responsibility. I mean, un until then, it had just been the executive branch that had devised a budget, and then it would send it to Congress. And the view of Congress was it wanted to take some of that power back and take some of the responsibility, so Congress would do its own blueprint. Um, and I think that's important. And of course, as, as we know, that's when the Congressional Budget Office was created. Um, sadly, though, uh, Bob, as you've said, it's it's been several years since Congress has done a budget resolution, except with the one caveat that Congress has done a budget resolution when it wants to use reconciliation. And so the budget resolution has essentially been an excuse to do a reconciliation bill. Um, and the question that, that you're putting is, is a really important one, and I don't have a good answer to it, which is, how can we reinvigorate the the authority, the responsibilities of the budget committee? I think the idea is 
is important. I mean, I think somebody in Congress should be looking at the big picture. We all know the appropriators are going to do their thing. We all knew that, know that the authorizers are going to do what they want to do. But there ought to be somewhere in Congress, in the House and the Senate, people who are responsible for seeing the big picture, how the pieces all fit together, and where we're headed in terms of the debts and deficit. Um, but honestly, for lots of different reasons, the budget committees have not been playing that role. And I think, frankly, a lot of it has to do with the uh, the fractured nature of Congress, the polarized nature of Congress. You know, writing a budget is hard. It's painful. And members of Congress don't like to cast painful votes uh, because putting a budget together means you've got to so there are going to be winners and losers. And uh, and Congress doesn't like to do that. So I think somehow or another, you need to incentivize the Congress to do a budget resolution. From the Senate's perspective, I know the the, the most painful thing I, I think from a from an institutional perspective is the whole what we call a votorama. So anybody who's ever watched the Senate uh, do a budget resolution, there's a limit on debate. But once the debate time runs out, there's still an unlimited opportunity to offer an amendment. And it it is it turns into sort of a, a, a circus or a sideshow where members are just offering amendments after amendments. There's you know two minutes to say, okay, here's what my amendment does. And literally the, the Senate will stay up all night, you know, through the night voting on these what are arguably, you know, from a policy perspective, meaningless amendments. So it, I guess, you know, my perspective would be if you changed the budget process a little bit and made it more meaningful and more real. I mean, one thing is per, perhaps to make the budget resolution binding so that the House and Senate would have to negotiate a budget resolution, it would have to be signed by the president, get every all three, you know, three parties involved, do away with sort of the meaningless amendments. You could, for example, you know, you could adopt a little more of a House style approach in the Senate and allow the minority to offer an alternative budget and have a debate on competing budgets. But this sort of nickel and diming the budget resolution with these sort of silly amendments, which everybody recognizes and stays up all night to do for some, and then they complain about it the next day. Um, you know, I, I think there's both some procedural changes that could be made that, that made the process less onerous and a little more meaningful. That might potentially make a little difference. Tori, what's your favorite fix, if any? Oh, there are just so many things wrong with the budget process. I mean, I think Tom and, and Steve have hit on, on several that are at the top of my list. But I think one of the things that stands out to me is that yeah, the, the, the whole process of putting together a budget resolution is a very partisan exercise. The people that are on, the members that are on your budget committees tend to be the most partisan. And a budget resolution can pass both chambers with a simple majority. But that budget resolution is also what lays the foundation for the appropriations process to follow. And those appropriations bills, they need 60 votes in the Senate. So you start by crafting the outlines of appropriations bills with a simple majority um, it, it shouldn't surprise you then that it becomes very problematic to pass appropriations bills that comply with the budget resolution. So, you know, I think there are a number of things that we need to do with the budget committee in terms of retooling what they do, um, who sits on the budget committee. I mean, it's, it's pretty rare that you've actually got appropriators that sit on the budget committee. Um, you know, committees provide their views and estimates to the budget committee, but they don't sit there and they don't vote in committee. Um, and as, as Steve was saying, you know, the budget resolution doesn't have the force of law, right? So 
members know when they're putting together a budget resolution, they're not shooting with live ammo. They're 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 putting together a document that they can immediately you know wave um, on a on a, a motion to waive a point of order before the ink is even dry. So I just there there are several things about the budget process that are just completely and wholly unserious, including Votorama. Um, and I think if you sort of make the process more enjoyable, less onerous, less p- political, more meaningful, um, and dare I say more impactful, you know, where it actually does something, then I think you'll see a turnaround in the 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 in, in whether Congress does a budget every year. So we're for keeping the budget committee and making it more relevant. I think. <laughs> I mean, I think that that's uh, that's. And my that's, friends on the Senate Budget Committee will be very happy that I. Well, said. I mean, we should keep it. You know, I, I I think we should keep the Budget Committee. It's just very frustrating that uh, uh, that they're not uh, producing budgets. But we'll uh, we'll have to leave that for another day because we've run out of time. <laughs> that's all we have. Unlike the Budget Committee, we've run out of time. Thanks for listening. Uh, we've been talking to Tom Kahn faculty uh, fellow at American University and a former staff director of the House Budget Committee. This is your host, Bob Bixby. I'll be back next week with another edition of Facing the Future. 